Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's New Books and Psychoanalysis. I'm Richard Briette. I'll be your host for this show. And today we're welcoming Hilary Neroni, author of The Subject of Torture, Psychoanalysis and Biopolitics in Television and Film. Hilary teaches in the Film and Television Studies program at the University of Vermont and is also the author of The Violent Woman, Femininity, Narrative, and Violence in Contemporary American Cinema. Hilary, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Um, thanks for being with us. So I'm going to start with the question that we always ask on this show, which is, how did you come to write this book? Sure. Well, I had written, as you mentioned, um, a book on violence uh, previous to this one. It was on um, violent women. So I wrote it in the 90s, <clears throat> and it was about... Um, a new trend across mediums and across genres of um, of a more action-oriented heroine who had kind of hit the scene and um, was more ubiquitous post-1992 about with um, Thelma and Louise and mm-hmm. all these kind of films that came out in the early 90s. Um, and, and I looked at the way that previous to this moment, we could find the violent woman, but kind of contained in different genres like film noir or black exploitation or things like that. But then post this sort of moment, um, there was a shift and, and violent women could be found more across different genres and, um, and in film and in television. And I analyzed, you know, all the, these films and talked a lot about masculinity and femininity and how violent women disrupted some basic traditional ideas about masculinity and femininity and kind of revealed from a psychoanalytic standpoint um, the lack of a sexual relationship between um, men and women. In other words, that there's not a complementary relationship between masculinity and femininity that ideology wants us to believe there is. So I had done all this thinking about violence. I'd read everything about that was out there on violence in the cinema, and I had been watching a lot in terms of violence. And so I was in a certain way of um, just being aware of how violence defined identities in um, in media, in films, and um, on television. Although in my first book, I do just talk about films mm. um, rather than also television series. So... Um, after 9-11 and the attacks of 9-11, um, I started seeing, just as a, as a moviegoer, I started seeing um, torture scenes, which I had not really seen a lot of. I mean, you know, I could name the films where there were torture scenes here and there. Um, we'd all seen it, certainly. But 
there seemed to be a, a lot more. And as as the 2000s wore on, um, and then especially after the release of the Abu Ghraib photos in, in late April in 2004, um, which was a story that was broke by CBS 60 Minutes 2 at the time, and then it was, you know, everywhere, um, those photos from Abu Ghraib of the um, torture that had happened there. Um, after that point, um, even more, I noticed that there was just every, it felt to me like every film I went to, um, there was another torture scene. And since I was so attuned to seeing violence and thinking about how violence on screen um, defined uh, worked, you know, with obviously many other aspects, but worked to define certain ideological ideas about, you know, um, identities, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, I was sort of overwhelmed by this um, new, you know, this... Um, intrusion by this new form of violence that I felt was really becoming, um, you know, ubiquitous. And then I found um, some statistics that eventually confirmed for me what I was seeing. I had found that, you know, um, prime time, um, some statistics were released that in... um, so from 1995 to 2001, in primetime television, there were only 110 scenes of torture. But from 2002 to 2007, there were 836 scenes of torture. Wow. And this is just on primetime television. You know, we're not talking cable. We're not talking films. You know, this is just primetime television. So, you know, I, I started digging around, and, and I saw these statistics, which confirmed what I thought was happening and um and i decided i wasn't going to write another violent another violent book another <laughs> book on violence but i felt compelled to address this real shift that i saw um that was happening in the realm of representation well i'm really glad that you did um i mean i felt you know after reading this uh your book that this is such an important topic and you know i'm not you know, I mean, I'd, I'd consider myself somewhat um, aware of, you know, the um, academic literature coming out. I can't really think of many or any other studies on this. And, you know, I have the same reaction. It's incredible that it just sort of made this um, ubiquitous and overnight appearance in mass culture. Um, so I'm really appreciative that you um, took this project on. Well, I... You know, one of the things I felt like that also, that it just jumped out at me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't until I started writing the book that, of course, I felt that this wasn't something that just, that just you know, happened. There had been a stage that had been set already, you know, in a sense, um, for this to happen. So uh, that was part of the, the something that I had to investigate or work through in a theoretical way because clearly there was 9-11 and then there was um, a military decision to um, to allow for and even require torture as part of military practice. Right. Um, and there are all these great documentaries out there and now there's just tons of books out there that document exactly the chain of command um, within which that happened, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that's pretty non-controversial at this point. But of course, back then it was more controversial. Well, I mean, but, you know, um, we're, you know, we're having this discussion in the context of just the news recently of the ACLU suing the psychologists that designed the torture program. Yeah. Um, not yeah. to mention, yeah. you know, from um, from our own um, psychoanalytic family, in New York. Um, the APA psychologists, um, you know, Stephen Reisner and, and Stephen Saltz, who were really behind a lot of the um, the uh, critique and um, um, whistleblowing about what happened with the APA. So, yeah, it's amazing yeah. to have this discussion now, but also to harken back to that time. 
um, to compare right. the two. It's not over. It's not right. over, I don't think. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's... Right. I, I mean, it's, go ahead. It's, I'm sorry, go ahead. In some ways, I thought that... Um, I really did sort of feel like, okay, this is... A, initially, I felt like this is a reaction to... And I still, I mean, in many ways, this is true. It's a reaction to what we learned our military was doing. Right. You know, I mean, and those Abu Ghraib photos, it was the visual evidence that, um, in my mind, really provoked a huge, you know, outpouring of discussion, both in the news media, but also in our fictional land of film and television. Right. You know, that there was this kind of, like, court of popular opinion just trying to deal with these images, you know, and trying to think about how these images, what they meant and how they represented or didn't represent us and how they happened, right? Sort of dealing with the trauma um, of them. And and in many ways, I guess I hoped or thought maybe that chapter would be closed and, and then we'd be looking at this in a very historical manner. But I think that it opened this door that we haven't yet been able to close. So I think you're right. We're still really working with um, a sort of new set of parameters that we're trying to figure out how to make them go away or how yeah. to change them. But, but they're still with us. Well, let's, you know, I, so let's jump into this thing. Um, and um, I want to kind of set the table for our discussion with, you know, especially what you do in chapter one, which is called torture, biopower and the desiring subject. Um, and, you know, I know that you, you know, we talk about nine 11 as this sort of precipitating event, but you, and I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned this, that you, the stage is already set. Um, and I think that what my sense is that you're getting at this idea that there's something going on in society in in mass culture that is setting the stage for this um appearance of torture in culture to be kind of so easily received does that sound right yes yes right so um right so so one of the other theoretical models that i turn to to try to understand um, what um, how torture was accepted so easily at this particular moment in time um, is the concept of biopower right and basically biopower sees the body as a simple biological vessel whose worth is dependent solely on its survival and um, so because of this the body can be controlled contained or eliminated depending on what's best for the survival of the greatest number of people. So in a way, biopower is a, is utilitarian in nature. It takes a kind of quantitative approach to the good. Um, and the, the rise, I mean, one way to see it is that the rise of biopower is connected to the rise of capitalism, mm-hmm. um, which sees everything in terms of value, you know, within the economic system, and also in a way connected, um, all connected to the rise of a certain scientific belief that we can solve the the um, that if we solve the biological puzzles about the body, we will know everything about the individual. Um, you know, so, I I would yeah. say just you know, knowing the audience of this podcast who are, you know, a lot are mental health, uh, professionals, um, you know, this very easily translates to what we deal with in terms of diagnosis, um, the DSM, um, dealing with insurance companies and the idea of deliverables, Mm -hmm. um, and certainly the whole discourse of, um, medication, and the idea that there's something wrong with my brain, I find the right thing, it, it's fixed. Right, exactly, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, and and so that this this ideology, this set of beliefs of biopower, which as you gave good examples of how it guides even the mental health profession, I think, um, is really one of the kind of dominant ideologies today. And it sees the perpetuation of the survival of the body and um, as the driving force behind the political, political and social decisions. So 
and your examples that are really good, certain medicines that can solve mental problems. But also you can look to other um, kind of uh, exam- smaller examples throughout that we get bombarded with on uh, an everyday, um, in a routine way. For example, our obsession with health today in terms of diets um, and also especially in terms of monitoring our bodies. So now we have devices that we can wear all day that record all the information from our bodies um, as if that's going to tell us something more about the reason things are going on, let's say, in our psyches, or even something more about our health, which will then solve all our problems. Um, But more, it's getting us to focus on our bodies constantly so we can track them, watch them through, you know, you can track your heart rate and your blood pressure and the amount of steps you've taken. Um, and then you can put it in a pie chart and study it, and right? So it keeps you constantly focused on the biology of as if there's all the answers there. Um, and this kind of biological approach, meaning seeing uh, individuals as solely defined by their bodies, um, predominates today and and really provides that ideological foundation for the thinking that that torture works. Um, And if the individual is only a biological entity that wants to survive, then torturing the body is one effective way, this fantasy believes, um, to retrieve the secrets that it harbors. So in other words, under the threat of pain or death, the body will reveal the secrets that it contains. Um, and I would say that that's, that is a wholly biopolitical way of seeing the body. It certainly um, sanitizes the idea of torture in yes. the sense that torture is simply a key to open the lock to get information. Absolutely. So it sees the body as this vessel that um, you're right, like as a as a vault, you have to get in, you just need the key to open it or as a vessel, you just have to crack. Right. It sees it in a very in a very sanitized kind of way. And so, of course, so, so nothing so personal. personal. Right. Where I'm just getting information. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's right. There's nothing personal. There's nothing. Um, it's just a tool. Right. And that's mm-hmm. the way really the Bush administration um, pushed the legitimacy you know, the idea that torture was a legitimate way of finding out information um, and as if it was a clean kind of method, right? When it gets talked about in those memos and in all these different ways, it's as if that's that's the that's a clean kind of method. Mm-hmm. OK, so that is biopower. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think what I got from your discussion of that, of biopower is that has been a discourse in society that had been building for decades leading up to nine 11. Yes. Right. Absolutely. That it had been, it's, it's a, it's a set of beliefs that has been building over a couple hundred years and, and especially becoming stronger and stronger in our, you know, um, during this, past century and um, something that um, that then once 9-11 happened, there was this kind of um, uh, really reaching into that ideology as a way to explain and to justify the ter- the, the um, use of torture right after. Mm-hmm. When in fact, you know, that use of torture was you could instead step back and say a reaction to a tremendous amount of fear and um, trauma and, and an aggress you know, um, all about aggression and the desire to hurt people and so forth. So, it, you know, a kind of helplessness, but instead of, of thinking about it in those terms, the way the Bush administration explained it was not, we want to humiliate and degrade um, somebody for what happened, um, they said, we're going to, we're using torture to find out information. It's a clean way to, it's a fast way 
to get the information that we want. The implication being, if we had our, t- if we could take our time, we wouldn't use torture, but <laughs> we we have to do it quickly. Um, so we're going to use torture because it works. Of course, um, there's every evidence that torture doesn't work at all, right? right, right. That any time there's any information that comes out of torture, it's relatively coincidental and and rare, you know, um, and so. But that was very much disavowed, you know, that that was what had to be repressed during this entire um, time period because um, they wanted to use torture as as a way to to extract information. And so you're you know, you you come back to that point again and again throughout all the various um you know, films um, and TV shows that you study and the documentaries about the actual torture that happened, this idea, as you say, of ideology, that it is a tool that, or it's it's a, a way of thinking that um, addresses fear and anxiety. Um, it's a way of acting out. Um, and so you can say, on one hand, well, we're just doing enhanced interrogation. While on the other hand, at a mass sort of social level, it's a it's a, a form of acting out and humiliation and aggression that is um, feeding people's bloodlust in a way. Yes, um, absolutely. And I think, you know, that, so the question for me when I was thinking through this is, and I think what the Abu Ghraib photos really revealed to me when I saw them was that this whole idea that torture works completely falls apart in the torture chamber. Right. right? So um, you can pass down these commands through the, you know, through the ranks and, and sanitize what torture could be through memos and so forth. Um, but then once the military... And the interrogators got face to face with these people, you know, um, in the torture chamber. That whole belief in the potential of biopower, it all falls apart when you are faced, when you when you are not looking at a body, when you're torturing them. But instead, in fact, what psychoanalysis can show us is that you are in front of another subject, Right. Mm -hmm. Someone who is another subject equal to you, who has desires and who has an unconscious and is not just a biological vessel that you could just crack open, but rather um, is a subject who has who doesn't just do what it's supposed to do. Right. That's we as some, you know, one of the points about psychoanalysis, as I that I really love is that um, we subjects don't do what they're supposed to do. They don't even, we don't always do even what we want ourselves to do. Right. (laughs) So like we self-sabotage, you know, our desire doesn't run in the direction we always wish it would. Right. So for, if we get back to the, if we go back to those diets and those health monitoring equipment, you know, we can, track our calories and monitor our bodies. And we, we know what we're supposed to do to lose weight or to be healthy in a certain way. So why do we all not do it all the time? (laughs) Like if we just are supposed to follow the app and do what we're told, you know, but we don't because we, we are not just bodies, you know, we're subjects. We have desires. We have an unconscious. We, we sabotage ourselves all the time. Um, uh, and we desire in all kinds of different ways. And I think that what the biopolitical idea of the body doesn't allow for is the idea of desire. It doesn't allow for this, what I'm calling in opposition to that, the psychoanalytic subject. You know, it doesn't allow for um, the possibility that we could have a higher cause that we are are 
invested in that that and that we maybe would never give information that we even know you know i mean in the majority of cases in torture tortured victims just tell the torturer what they think they want to know right and so um which i think also you, you make that point um towards the end of the book um that there even, you know, in a psychoanalytic sense, there is a transference, um, however horrible that is for me to say, um, that the, 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 the victim of torture is relating to the torturer via a transference and, you know, depending on the person, maybe telling the torturer what they want to hear because of the dynamic interpersonally. Yeah, absolutely. So that... You know, so what happened, so then, okay, so what I was fascinated with, with the Abu Ghraib photos was, what, what is that smile on their faces in so many of those photos? The thumbs up and the smile, it was, it's so horrifying to right. look at, you know, and even the kind of torture that they're doing to the people. Um, so part of the thing I, I think about through, in the book that I try to rehearse in or think through in the book um, is that when this symbolic fiction of biopower and of torture as something that works breaks down and no information is produced and the, you know, this kind of contemporary torture fantasy, as I call it, um, that the, that it's promises don't produce what it's supposed to do at this point. Um, the whole ideology about it breaks down and a different, a fantasy. My idea is that a kind of fantasy fills the void of this failure Mm -hmm. in, in kind of different multi-layered ways. Um, On the one hand, the fantasy that torture works becomes even stronger, you know, because you don't want to believe that it's failing in front of you. So you believe even further in it working, you know, um, and then combined with a kind of racist fantasy mm-hmm. uh, built around the American soldiers ideas of their Arab prisoners. Right. And so this this race, this racist and racialized fantasy is one replete with sexuality um, and and the guards, you know, really did all these kinds of tortures that sexualized the Arab men who they were torturing um, through practices that were really directed at the prisoners' sexuality. So, like, putting panties over their heads, um, handcuffing them into sexual positions, um, being forced to drag their genitals on the ground, and so on. Um, so that, you know, they had this real sexual fantasy of the Arab men and so the the military, the American military, the individuals there had the actual Arab men in front of them, but their idea of torture um, didn't work unless they d- disavowed these actual men and instead substituted in their own fantasy of Arab men um, in the various ways that they did. So, you know, this is evidence the what they did to their prisoners is is evidence of the way that this torture scenario falls apart and all of these other aspects kind of come rushing in in the void i would say um so l- let me um let me just briefly pause um at that point and give the listeners kind of a a, a map of what you do with this with this insight um because it it I think you're building a case here for where cinema and television come into the, into play yeah. via their, the, the depiction of the human body on the screen and the contradictions that come out of that. Um, so, and, and that's a really, I think that's a really exciting and really provocative um, connection between what you're saying about the, these definitions of torture and how it plays out in culture. Um, so you, so you know, you go on and and look at the documentary films made about Abu Ghraib and torture. But then you also go on and look at the um, development of torture porn, 
with with the films Hostel and Saw, and then you look at the TV series 24, Mm -hmm. um, and then this really, really um, clever, I think, um, idea of the bio-detective versus the detective of the real. Um, And then you look at Alias, the the TV show, and the notion of having a fictional alternative. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Okay, so that is just for the listener to have a sense of where you go with this. I I think we've sort of set the groundwork here. There's Mm -hmm. the idea um, of the biopolitical subject that is tortured and just yields information. But then there's the idea of the psychoanalytic desiring subject Mm -hmm. and the contradiction between the two. And, um, And then the question about how ideology... Um, tries to glue the, um, I don't know how to put it, to to adhere or glue to, um, my phone was just talking to me, Um, the the gap, the void, as you're talking about. Mm -hmm. I hope that made sense, what I just said. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I, um, and although I'm presenting to you the ideas, um, all the ideas I just sort of talked to you about, and, and many of which are more front-loaded in terms of the theory in the introduction and in the first chapter, um, although those come first in the book, of course, I have to say that I, I discovered those as I engaged all of these films and television shows and, and the Abu Ghraib photos themselves. So it really... While it's laid out neatly in the book, it right. really was a process of engagement, you know, of all of these things where I, I was able to um, understand better, you know, what, what was happening through engaging these texts. And, and, um, and, you know, generally, my, after doing all this, my feeling was, you know, there, there is no there wasn't just one way that popular culture presented torture. In fact, there were many different versions and ways that popular culture presented torture, um, often kind of falling into two camps, either um, that it presented that torture worked or that it didn't work. You know, although as I talk about in that chapter on zero dark 30 and Homeland, as we, as time marched on and, you know, more into the, um, as you get a decade away or, or, or so, the text became even more, a little bit more convoluted. Like it wasn't just that it worked or it didn't work. It would sort of sometimes have both of those things going on in one show. But, um, but what I found in a certain way was, a little heartening because I found that there were shows out there that were grappling with the fact that torture doesn't work. And there were genres of film like torture porn, oddly enough, that were investigating the horror at the center of, um, of torture and of the Abu Ghraib photos. Um, there were also shows and films that were taking the more biopolitical, the ideological um, uh, road and saying that torture absolutely works, like the show 24, which I think is ap- it's um, across the board, just um, in all of many different ways, really just believes that torture works. And in fact, as many people know, um, the military often quoted 24 when they were in different spots, there's document of it that they would quote 24 or refer to Jack Bauer, the star, um, uh, the star character of 24, when talking about why they should torture. Yeah, and don't we have? Was it who was it? Scalia that referred yes, yeah. to yeah. So this, up to the Supreme Court. So that was an interesting question that I was asking as I went through your book. And and you're right, you know, actually going through the shows and the movies um, and reading along with you in the book was, was, was really enlightening and really interesting. I mean, to be honest, I was kind of dreading it Um, (laughs) um, just because, okay, now I'm going to have to read all about 
the Saw films and Hostel, and you know, I I don't even look at the the movie posters for those things. Um, <laughs> Me either. So. Uh, but, um, <laughs> but you know, I also know that clearly there's some part of me that is uncomfortable with what part of myself I, you know i might um i don't know I'll, I'll talk to my analyst about that but um it, but you know this also reminds me of a um um uh something someone told me i worked with i i actually worked um in a t- torture treatment centers um both in chicago and briefly in new york and at the kovler center in Chicago, the director of the program, Mary Fabry, um, you know, we were talking about self-care at some point. Um, and she said, you know, um, I can't watch any movies that involve any kind of violence at all now. No thrillers, nothing. Um, I only watch movies with Julia Roberts. <laughs> you mean after her involvement with torture victims? Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, this was, um, I mean, it was in the 90s, so it was a time when Julia Roberts was popular. But um, right. I'm, I suppose for some people that might be a terrible thing to have to deal with also. But um, so, you know, there is this real resistance that I felt about going through all of these things. But it's really, actually really fascinating, um, the, the work that you put into it. Um, so I was actually, you know, I found myself... Um, really going through it and just really fascinated by the whole thing. So, um, but how did you sort of, as you went through all of this material, the photos, the TV shows, the movies, like, did you notice anything about, you know, what you were experiencing and or how it affected you? Yes, of course. Actually, (laughs) to be honest, I was pretty surprised. I, you know, because I had spent the 10 years before this investigating violence um, in in terms of action, you know, the action heroine. Right. And, um, and I was not, I, I was never affected by watching violence, but after this book and after thinking so much about it and after reading, um, after reading all the, I read so many books, um, on torture itself and on before even, you know, or while investigating the, the media um, representations. But, you know, I read the, the testimony of the torture victims. I, you know, watched all the documentaries I, I read. And, and then even in watching all these films in a concentrated way and these TV series, I just became... Uh, like your colleague, I, it became very difficult for me to watch violence after this. Um, and so it did affect me. Um, and, and I think that, um, that surprised me. I was surprised. I was very surprised to be affected in that way. Um, and it's been, uh, the book obviously just came out, but it's been, you know, a, a while since, uh, about a year, you know, since I finished the writing of it and and everything, so I've had some time away from from the concentrated investigation into it. Um, but initially, so I'm feeling a little bit less less touchy about it. But initially, I couldn't watch anything after after doing it. So yes, it really did affect me because I I mean um, I think because I. Uh, it's a different kind of violence to talk about torture than than when I was writing about violent action heroines. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of violence that I feel, and also the way I talk about it in the book, I feel like this shift into into a belief in torture, this shift into seeing torture as as something that is needed in in our society. Um, is a shift that affects a lot of things and it affects um, and it um, brings up a kind of cruelty and a kind of desire to humiliate and degrade other people um, that I think is very bad for all of us. And I think that 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 really saddened me and made me, um, you know, it, it, it affected me a great deal. Um. You know, there was a, um, a a line in the book that I thought was so powerful. Um, 
where you say, um, today, biopower represents the ruling ideological structure and remaining within the paradigm of biopower guarantees that society will continue to live under a regime of torture. Yes, I think I do still think that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I think that certainly since I read your book, um, I'm seeing violence and the representation of violence differently also. Um, even, um, you know, the, the, the reception of the, uh, up until recently, the preponderance of, um, you know, um, um, phone camera videos of police violence um, and killings, um, that there is a similar... Uh, element at play of a kind of dehumanizing of both figures um, in in the way that these videos are um, um, reproduced in certain media. Um, I think it brings out the racism and the the dehumanizing and the ideology all at the same time, just as you're talking about in this book. Hmm. That's an interesting point. I definitely have to think through and, you know, look at how, how those are used. But because one of the, one of the things that I talk about is that um, the scenes of torture are often used in a very particular way within the larger narrative um, and that they have come to, uh, that, that they have, um, they are now fulfilling uh, plot expectations um, and and other expectations within the filmic and televisual uh, narrative, um, and that in those ways we've come to expect them and accept them. Um, so, for example, I mean, there's the obvious kind of plot expectation that now when we when um, a police officer or somebody has a victim and they want to um, or has you know, even the criminal, and they want to find out more answers, um, the go-to plot move then is to torture them, right, in order to find out that information. Um, but then also visually, what's interesting is that this torture, that it also has a very visual presence, in, in other words, a lot of visual expectations um, that we expect kind of visual repetition of what torture is supposed to look like. And I think in that way, the um, horror horror films that you don't want to see, um, which are, are hard to watch, um, they have an interesting, they, they sort of lay bare the role of torture in media. And one of the ways that they do it is if you analyze it, um, you see the way that the torture acts as this spectacle that kind of stops the narrative and that we are supposed to enjoy, right? Like it's a spectacle for us to enjoy, even if it's in, if it's pleasure in this horrible scene, but it's a kind of spectacle that stops the narrative. And in my book, I talk about um, how there are film theorists who talk about the role that musicals, uh -huh. um, musical numbers play within a musical, you know, the narrative is going along and then you stop to see the, the musical number, it's a spectacle, right? And then you continue. And um, this, people have also written about how this is true in the action film, that now in the action film or the thriller, a lot of times the scene of violence often also um, has kind of like a pumped music, exciting music that overplays it. Um, and that you stop the narrative and then you enjoy the spectacle, right, of the of the violence and the music, and then you go back to the narrative. And the torture in these um, films often has that role as well. So even in the way you're supposed to read the visuals, you know, that it's supposed to be this kind of pleasurable spectacle, um, uh, participates in the way that it feeds a certain ideology um, and involves, I think, or engages the the viewer in a certain way. You know, but it, what you're saying makes me think about the sort of drive derivative elements of that. It's like the narrative stops and then there's a kind of repetition compulsion element. The senses, the rhythm, the... Um, you know, the, the, the 
all of the sound and light that comes with some kind of visceral experience, which hits you at a different level um, as a viewer. So, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a, there's a kind of pleasure in that viewing. Right. Yeah. And a pleasure in the repetition of it and the anticipation of it. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, in the interest of time, um, I, I wish we could talk about the, the, um, the documentaries more. Um, but I feel like we've, you know, co- unless you have another point about them that we haven't really gotten to, I think uh, what I'm thinking is we talked maybe about 24 sure. and maybe I, I can't resist talking about zero dark 30 cause I have such enmity for that, um, whole project, but, um, and that film, but also, and then maybe if we can, we can talk about alias and the idea of the fictional alternative to torture. Sure. So the thing about, um, the 24, uh, chapter is you really talk about this idea of the, the, um, the torture fantasy or the, the ticking bomb scenario, Yes. which is this go-to every conservative, every, you know, pro torture commentator. What about the ticking bomb? Right. Which is this completely unrealistic fantasy that enables the entire edifice of the torture fantasy to, to sort of function, right? Right, exactly. So the ticking bomb scenario is, is um, as you say, it's referred to so often when people are trying to justify torture uh, that there is a, for example, there's a bomb somewhere and um, and it's going to kill thousands of people. Um, you have a potential a suspect in custody <clears throat> and so and you need answers now because the bomb is about to explode so the so then then the justification or the suggestion is what you have to do is torture because even if um torture might be frowned upon it might might be considered something um that that the law shouldn't do um, it is supposedly something that police shouldn't do. It is in the Geneva Convention that we had originally agreed with um, the U.S., you know, that was not a lawful ethical action, uh, something that corrupts the law rather than upholding it. Um, but you're out of time, right? So you have to resort to this, um, to torture, because within this scenario, torture is supposed to work. Um, and so then you torture the person and you get the information and you save the thousands of people who are going to die. Um, and, and so we so- have, you know, the figure outside of the law that has to do it in order to preserve the system, like Jack Bauer. Right. So Jack Bauer, who's the hero of 24, what sort of... Um, the show, I mean, we could talk a long time about it, but I'll try to yeah, <laughs> just I know. Down. But the show, um, every season, by the end of the show, uh, Bauer is, is kicked out again, you know, or, and, or at least many seasons. And so then with the start of the next season, they always have to say, oh, he's off. You know, he, he had to go because he, he isn't exactly what the law expects of its enforcers, right? But then something bad happens, so we have to bring him back in and his and his dirty ways in order to... Um, which is, of course, a common trope, and I talk about that in the chapter, that it is a trope even of the Western, right? right. Where, where that kind of hero comes in to save the town and then has to leave after because he's too violent. Um, or, or, you know, the, um, the second Batman movie which was yeah. so beloved by George Bush and, and Dick Cheney that it was the same figure. Right, who has to come in but then can't stay. Right. Yeah. Um, so in 24, of course, what's fascinating about the show is that the entire thing, the entire structure of the show is um, based on the clock itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so the show is supposed to happen in real time. It's 24 hours of one day. Um, and every minute is accounted for by this clock that shows up um, at the bottom of the screen throughout the the episodes, um, and so the whole the whole show, every subplot of the show is tied to this clock that's running down. And so the idea of the show is that um, we're running out of time, and we have to 
solve this problem before we run out of time. And one of the things I try to talk about in the chapter is that even that idea that we're going to run out of time, you know, um, becomes part of the ideological edifice of, of biopower. Right. And so the, the show, um, in the show, Jack Bauer tortures many people and torturing them always works for him. He always gets the information. And um, not the, the renewed season, but at the end of the initial block of seasons, that last um, uh, season, the final episode, there's this one, one moment that I talk about as being the quintessential moment of the of the um, whole series because Jack Bauer and I remember watching this thinking, Oh my God, they're going to end with him torturing someone and not getting information. He's torturing this guy and not getting the information he wants at the end. Um, And he keeps trying and trying to torture him and this guy won't give up the information in order to hide the information that this guy knew in his head, but also had on his on the SIM card from his phone in order to hide this from Jack, he swallows the SIM card. And so Jack is torturing him, trying to get the information. Um, But when he can't, he kills him and he opens his stomach and he takes with a knife and he takes out the SIM card, wipes it on his pants, puts it in his phone and finds the information. That's (laughs) incredible. Yeah. To me, that was just the ultimate symbol of, of that idea of the body as just this vessel that you reach in and you get the information that you want. It's the biopolitical money shot. Right. <laughs> that is exactly <laughs> what it is. Um, and, but you also point out that Bauer as a figure is not himself a desiring subject. He ruins his own life. He's this sort of, you know, he's living this sort of terrible, he has a terrible personal life. He's alienated and alone. But this is the um, this is the um, price he has to pay, right? And I mean, I think that that um, you know what's interesting about Jack Bauer is that he he gets tortured in this in the series, but mm-hmm. he never reveals any information. Um, and I think the reason they can play both sides in that way is because. He takes up that position of a very well-known uh, heroic trope of that Western hero, you know, in the in the show. So, so he proves his masculinity and his and his um, his his place of power, you know, by not giving up the information. But any victim that he has will always give up the information when he tortures them. Um, so they play it a little loose with him as a character. You know, if they were to stay absolutely the torture always works, they'd have to, I suppose they would have to have him give up that information as well. But what it shows is that for that torture fantasy to work, you know, for that myth to work, there has to be all these other components that that are also fantastical, which is that right. the torturer themselves, you know, um, is somehow super heroic uh, and would never give up information themselves and can always get the information from their victim, you know, because they have to do a tremendous amount of, um, they have to do a tremendous amount of work with this fantasy in order to make torture work. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, um, we're so quickly running out of time. Um, maybe if you, we could just give a, a brief idea to folks about the show Alias, which I hadn't heard of until reading this, and then sort of the the concept that it tries to float about fiction. Sure. Okay. um, To get to Alias, one of the things I talk about, which you mentioned, is that what I found is that in these shows that, that, that had a detective, you know, that they either believed that torture worked or they believed that torture didn't work. What worked is to follow the um, person's desire, Mm -hmm. is to elicit the person's desire or to follow the breadcrumbs, um, the 
the um, evidence, not of not the biological evidence, not the biometric evidence, you know, not the evidence of the body, but rather the evidence of the subject, the person's desire. Um, and so I do this sort of um, this contrast between a biodetective, someone who would only follow like forensic information and torture and surveillance versus a kind of um, detective of the real. And here I'm referring to, you know, the Lacanian idea of the real um, in psychoanalysis. So I could just as well have called the detective of desire. Um, or but, maybe even the unconscious in a way. Right. The detective of the unconscious. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So the show Alias um, is, in my mind, about a detective of desire um, and Alias ran from 2001 to 2006. Um, again, not enough time to talk about it in here, here but uh, there is also a significant um, point that 24 has a male hero right. in there, and Alias has a female hero, um, heroine, um, but at the center of the story. But anyway, in Alias... Um, her main way of finding information is to um, put on different aliases, and thus the title of the show. So um, the the main hero, Sydney, she can she'll put on, for example, if she's going to go into a nuclear plant in Russia, you know, to um, find out certain secrets that she has to find out to save a lot of people who might die, she goes there and she'll, um, she speaks, you know, numerous languages and she'll put on, um, uh, she'll pretend to be a scientist and she does a very good job of it. And so, um, or if she, she pretends to be numerous, obviously identities throughout the series. And when she approaches people within that scene, rather than grabbing them and torturing them to find out where, you know, the information is she's seeking, she will um, interact with them, engage them and um, convince them that she is, you know, the character that she's playing, uh, that she needs to get into the building or can they help her with something or um, or finding out what their desire is and following that and creating a scenario where the person can, can you know, um, follow their desire while still letting her into the place that she wants to get into. So the entire show is, is based on the idea that, you know, she can find what she wants through um, being a detective of, of people's desire and of their subjectivity rather than by using violence. Um, And I talk about the show because it's at the same time that 24 is. Um, And people actually talked about Alias sometimes in the same breath as 24 because there were some torture scenes in Alias. Um, And and at a time when people were criticizing the use of torture within television shows, um, they would say, for example, in 24 and and Alias. Um, But the way that torture is presented in Alias is utterly different than in 24. Um, because in Alias, torture just doesn't work. So she does other, she doesn't often torture someone. Oftentimes it's her father, which is another interesting thing. But, um, you know, uh, other people and she sometimes torture people. It never works for them. So, and sometimes they might get information from someone they torture, but it gets them, leads them nowhere. So the only the most successful information they get and the most the way that they are the most successful is by is when Sydney performs these aliases and um, in that way um, follows people's desire rather than treating people like bodies. She treats people like subjects, which really is part of your point about torture that you make um, that when we stop treating people like subjects and treat them like bodies torture um happens yes and if you think of someone as a subject rather than as a body you know that torture is not going to work right well i think on that point um we can stop um or we can at least stop talking for now i don't know um 
Hillary, it's been such a pleasure talking. I, I'm sure we could make a three-hour show out of this. We've barely um, – we touched on a lot, actually. We should give ourselves credit. But um, there's so much more in this book. Listeners, I hope you go get it. It's The Subject of Torture, Psychoanalysis and Biopolitics in Television and Film, Columbia University Press 2015. Hillary Neroni, thanks again for joining New Books in Psychoanalysis. Thank you so much. Okay. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.